Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm your host, Tom Powers. In my day job, that's also a night job, I program for the Toronto International Film Festival and the Doc NYC Festival. At both those events, I've had the pleasure to present many films directed by today's guest, Jonathan Demme. He's well known as the director of fiction films like Silence of the Lambs and Rachel Getting Married, but he's also maintained a distinguished output of documentary films. When we do fiction films, we're kind of trying to make them feel real. And when we do documentaries, we want them to feel dramatic and entertaining. Um, and it's kind of like a, I think there's a lot to be learned on both sides of the tracks. Demi got his start in the 1970s with Roger Corman and earned attention for directing the comedic drama Melvin and Howard. Then, in 1984, he released the stylish and influential concert film Stop Making Sense with the Talking Heads. From then on, Demi's output swayed back and forth between fiction and nonfiction. He invested his time and often his own money into portraits of people he admired, in films like Cousin Bobby about a socially engaged Episcopalian priest, The Agronomist about the Haitian journalist Jean Dominique, Jimmy Carter, the man from Plains, about the former president, and I'm Carolyn Parker, about an outspoken resident of post-Katrina New Orleans. Last year, Demi was treated for esophageal cancer, but his energy was undiminished when I met him last month at the Jacob Burns Media Arts Lab in Pleasantville, New York. Our discussion focused on his non-music documentaries. They begin with the film Swimming to Cambodia, for which he adapted a one-man stage show in downtown New York. Written and performed by Spalding Gray, Swimming to Cambodia is an autobiographical monologue that interweaves the personal and the political. Gray talks about the mass genocide that took place in Cambodia, yet he also tells stories that are very funny. Today, this kind of first-person storytelling is widely heard on shows like The Moth, This American Life, and other podcasts, but when Swimming to Cambodia was released in 1987, it was a revelation. I asked Demi how he got involved. Well, I had um, heard about Spalding Gray and heard about these amazing performances given by this guy sitting at a table alone uh, with minimal props and talking for an hour and a half. And, and my reaction was like very claustrophobic. I thought, I don't want to see that because what if I don't like it? It would for me like being trapped at the Bleecker Street Cinema when I was just starting out on art films and and being like wedged against the wall seeing La Ventura mm. and just realizing I don't understand this. I need to get out of here. <laughs> but knew I was in church at the Bleecker Street Cinema. It was Antonioni. So I didn't go. And then I got a phone call from Rene Shafransky who was going to make a, a uh, film, a documentary of Spalding's performance of Swindy Cambodia. Would I like to direct it? And I thought, okay, my dinner with Andre came out fairly recently. Mm. That's a film that got a lot of currency out of the fact that it was two people at a table talking to each other. It's never been done before. So I was like, what if you did a film of one guy at a table <laughs> talking? So I was intrigued. I went, and of course, seeing the piece blew my mind. Um, Spalding was a brilliant genius. There it was. And I thought, you know, yeah, I always feel, Tom, that, that like if, if you're riveted by something real, and that can be a performance or somebody behaving in the way they b behave, um, that this can be the making of a great documentary. 
So um, I just had every confidence that this, this would be a worthy uh, project. And uh, I love the challenge of, like, how do we do this? Do we open it up? No. Um, can we open it up cinematically through sound and maybe some, some archival stuff? Yes. And it was, it was very, very exciting to do. In this clip from Swimming to Cambodia, Spalding Gray talks about being an actor in the killing fields. One day at a beach in Thailand, he watches a colleague disappear into the sea. And I go, oh no, oh shit, oh fuck, oh he's drowned. I can't believe this is happening to me. I don't believe it. People do drown, I've read about it. We got a notice under our door saying, be careful when you swim at Phuket because of the riptides. Oh no, and the first thing that went through my head, and I'm telling you, it went so fast, I can't even speak as fast as the images went. The first rationalization that went through my head was, of course, making a film about this much death, some real person actually has to go. The next thing that went through my head was, it's not my fault, not mine. Nope, he was suicidal. The next thing that went through my head was quickly, find the most responsible man you can. There was no way I was going out in that high surf. And the man that occurred to me was John Swain, the Paris correspondent of the London Times, who had been in Phnom Penh when the Khmer Rouge marched in. And perhaps the most narcissistic of the reporters had come to watch himself be played by Julian Sands in the movie. So he happened to be there at brunch, and I just went, John! John Swain! Come quickly! I can't see Ivan! How different from the live performance is the film? It's, I believe, for me, um, and I did see a number of the live performances, and I've seen, of course, other pieces by Spaulding, he's very well rehearsed. There might be a tiny little... Um, departure here and there, maybe an additional ad lib, maybe, especially the audience might be provoking it through a particularly big laugh or something. But even down to the repositioning of the pencils mm. on the desktop, even when to take a sip of water, that was part of his flow. He, he knew how he wanted to do this <clears throat> and, and stuck very closely to it. And given that he had been doing this as a one-person show, what was it like for him to work with another collaborator? Um, well, he, you know, it's, it, it, it was pretty easy. He had, uh, I think it amused him and delighted him that um, Renee, who of course is a big character in his personal life narrative and in the narratives of Cambodia, I think he was, was, couldn't believe that Renee had found money to film a guy sitting at a table telling a story, <laughs> him. And he was terribly open to it. He was a very cool guy. I mean, tremendous energy went into crafting his stories, but he was pretty cool. So he was relaxed. The only thing um, that uh, I understood, and this made it completely easy for Spaulding, was that we had to have an audience for him to perform mm -hmm. for. I didn't want to show that audience um, because I wanted the movie order to know correctly that this, this is a film for you, not for mm -hmm. an audience. We mm -hmm. didn't sneak in and capture this. So um, he, uh, he was... He was his comfort zone was there. He had people to talk to. We only, gosh, I think we used like three cameras. This was a very low budget uh, piece. We did it twice. We did shot it once in the afternoon and once the evening, and we spent a couple of hours doing a few special shots, quote unquote, mm -hmm. um, which required a little blocking and stuff. And Spalding always wanted to be a movie star, mm -hmm. so I think now that part was very appealing to him, kind of doing the special shots with staging <laughs> and what have you. Yeah, but it was easy. <laughs> I wonder if you can, like, evoke 
what New York was like uh, in at that time in the 1980s, how Spalding Gray fit into the cultural firmament. Yeah. Here's what – that's so interesting because there was a, a very specific character to the city then. And I think it had a tremendous amount to do with, um, well, what was going on in the new wave music scene, mm. um, the – punk scene and and sort of essentially was all downtown Mm -hmm. so new york you know the hip cognoscenti like me and the people i hung out (laughs) with and the people that showed up at the venues you know we knew that new york had something extraordinary going on and that extended to spalding gray Mm -hmm. and it it extended to um uh gee the the trisha brown um uh the 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 dancers Mm -hmm. um there was a very kind of fierce kind of like we've got it all here We've got everything you can find anywhere else in New York uptown, um, and we also have this extraordinary, unique downtown scene. So, um, oddly, I, I saw um, the Talking Heads show that we wound up filming in California. Uh-huh. Um, I was out there at the time and met David um, and decided to do the film in California. We shot it in California, uh-huh. but by the time you know I came back to New York having done that, I now... And this was the, the greatest ego trip of all. Now, I was part of the downtown scene because I had <laughs> made a Talking Heads movie. Uh, and that is indeed, I'm sure, why they, uh, why Renee came to me on uh, Swimming to Cambodia. Right. But it was it – was, now, maybe – I think that scene exists now in a different form. Um, even younger people then were defining that scene as an audience in the 80s. And I think that, you know, like uh, all – so many of the great places, the great venues have closed up but others have opened up. So I think, you know, that's still going on. In 1988, Demi made the hour-long documentary Haiti Dreams of Democracy about the country after the overthrow of its dictator, Jean-Claude Duvalier. A few years later, Demi shot to greater prominence, winning the Oscar for Silence of the Lambs. When I rewatch his acceptance speech now, I'm struck that two decades before the hashtag OscarsSoWhite, Demi was taking time to acknowledge a new wave of emerging directors. Anyway, uh, two other quick things. I'm sorry, this is, t- this is almost one, just about directing. Um, I wanted very much to salute uh, John Singleton and Matty Rich and Jodie Foster and, and uh, Ernest Dickerson and uh, a, a bunch of new people in the last year that have come on with, with very exciting, wonderful visions and really breathed a tremendously important new life into, into our whole uh, cinematic uh, 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 landscape. Uh, and uh, I, th- I really want to salute those people uh, very strongly. His next film, Cousin Bobby, would dwell heavily on Harlem. Demi says these experiences made him even more attached to documentary. In Haiti or at Cousin Bobby in Cousin Bobby's neighborhood in Harlem, you just know you're going to rich terrain. And there's going to be incredibly interesting people there, but you don't know what they're going to do. There is no script. There's not really any agenda except to try to capture what's going on here. I've always, with, with, from the very start, with the Haiti film and then with Cousin Bobby and every documentary I've made since then, have always been, been about somebody that inspired me a lot or a place that inspired me a lot. And as a filmmaker, as a documentary filmmaker, you get to share that which inspires you with others, theoretically. You capture something that you find is very, you know, very moving and positive and inspiring. And now... Hopefully others will be inspired by by the film that you made from that subject matter. Let me follow up on that because that's striking to me that you describe this experience of making Haiti Dreams of Democracy and making 
cousin Bobby and having that be an experience of a kind of revelation to you about what the power and fun of documentary making is. And as you say that, it strikes me that at that point, you had been uh, making films for 15 or 20 years, mm-hmm. um, uh, making uh, fiction films. So it's striking me that, that that kind of discovery comes after you're a pretty established filmmaker. Mm. Mm. It, it, making documentaries at that stage of the game for me also function as like a great shower, a great dive in a wonderful lake. It was very cleansing because um, when we make feature films, Let's face it, and it's exciting and it's storytelling, but we're steeped in artifice. We're steeped in made-up stuff. Mm. Um, and um, to be able to, which I love doing mm. and I love seeing, um, but to be able to now step aside from a script and, again, to have a subject and a theme that, that just really, really is very, very strong for you, but to not know how the script ends, it's very exciting. Mm-hmm. It's very, very exciting. And you obviously have to have tremendous faith in your subject matter, as you well know, in order to, to take that journey, um, even to the extent of sometimes I think, uh, you know, most documentary filmmakers, I know me, sometimes I have started documentaries. I've gone to a place where something interesting mm-hmm. was going to be happening and, and maybe gone back three or four or five, even eight or ten times. And I have shelves of, of mm. tapes I've shot on, on fascinating subjects that never made it yet in the end of right. films. In this clip from Cousin Bobby, Demi and his cousin Bobby Castle visit the Jersey City Church where Bobby served as a priest in the 1960s. They meet the current Reverend Susanna Hobbs, who recounts what she's heard about Bobby. The mythology I pick up is that you brought black people into this church. You opened this church to a neighborhood that was changing radically in the 60s. And you also opened a coffee house here where the young adult black intellectuals, whether they were intellectual or not, but that was a a place that they could come and talk about all of the things that were concerning them. And out of that came not only a lot of baptized Christians, but out of that came a growth in the black Muslim uh, movement in Jersey City. Uh, The growth of the Black Panthers really started in this place. Now, I don't know how your congregation felt about that, Bob, because the congregation was probably still in the 50s. I got a phone call from a Spanish television production company that had a certain amount of money, and they were approaching filmmakers who work in fiction to see if they would be interested in doing a documentary on any subject that interested them. Um, I had, um, meanwhile, um, there was a lot of concern in those days, uh, well justified, that that the, the, the presence of black Americans on television was consisted really of newsreels of, of um, black crime and um, very little positive aspects of the African-American community. So um, Ed Saxon, my partner, and I had been talking a lot about, you know, how shameful that was, how detrimental that was to us, both at home and even abroad, what we're, we're sending over of, of, here's what it's like in America. Black people get arrested, black people killed, black people are on drugs. So we had wanted to kind of find a way to, you know, bring positive images, you know, truthful positive images of, of the black experience to screen through feature films. So when I got this call from Spain, 
I had been recently reunited with a cousin of mine, a slightly older cousin, who um, was a childhood hero of mine and who later became, uh, I didn't know this part, kind of a radical Episcopalian priest. And I heard about Cousin Bobby, uh, Robert Castle, uh, who's a minister of St. Mary's Church in Harlem. And I went to see him. And I'm getting this invitation to a documentary on any subject I want. And Bobby had a completely mixed congregation, um, everything under the sun. And um, he was doing great work in the community. He had amazing um, African-American people working with him at the church, lots of initiatives. So I was like, okay, I want to make a film about my cousin. And we can kind of like play out our reunion because we had just gotten back together on film. Bobby eventually lost his position in Jersey City and moved to Vermont. He explains to Demi what happened. Well, the, the, you know, the bishop, the bishop took me out to dinner just before we moved here to Vermont. It was a very agonizing thing to move up here. Not only did I have a church in Jersey City, but I was born and raised in Jersey City right. as well. And the bishop took me out to a lunch, and uh, he said, uh, he said, Bob, he said, you know, there should be a job here for you in the Diocese of York, but there isn't. Oh boy. And that's that's the moment you. Well, no, was, we we had already decided. But this, uh-huh. yeah, we had already decided that we had it was time to come here, you know, start a new life. But there was always that thing, you know. It was always, it was, I'd always had this feeling that, you know, you have, on a roadside in a rural area is a mailbox, right? Right. I always had this feeling that one day there'd be a letter there saying, you know, come back, come back, we need you, yeah. you know. <laughs> there was never a letter there, <laughs> so I went back on my own. So let me go back to Haiti, dreams of democracy. I believe I've heard you talk about going to Haiti for the first time like in 1986, 87, Mm -hmm. around then, shortly after Duvalier was out of power. And what was the switch that got flipped that made you want to make something uh, out of – to document this? Yeah, it's simple. I went to Haiti um, at this – this moment in time, it was shortly after the ouster, the coup that unseated um, Baby Doc. And I went down there because I had fallen in love with Haitian art. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to go to the source. So I went down there and arrived in a Haiti that was one year away from um, their first democratic elections in decades and decades and decades. And yeah, the art was great. And I got a stack of, you know, Haitian art's wonderful because often it's very inexpensive while being very beautiful or mystical or what have you. So I got my little stack of paintings. But meanwhile, I'm seeing all this tremendous energy and 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 investment being put by the people into the notion of democracy, making a better country for their children through the process of democracy. And um, particularly interesting and moving was the fact that that because the illiteracy rate was so high in Haiti, I think 83, 87 percent was the official number, because the Duvalier regime, the Tonton Makuts, had always discouraged schools. They didn't want poor people um, getting smart enough to have ideas of overthrow and what have you. So I saw all this amazing passion for democracy taking place despite the you know the 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 challenge of you know being able to printed word kind of suffer an election so music and street theater and and paintings and murals so i was like oh my god we in america have so much to learn from these people Mm. we take our democracy which is Mm. complicated we take it so for granted you know, mm. just so for granted. And I thought, we have a lot to learn from these people, and these people inspire me so much. So um, I called Joe Mennell, um, a great 
um, South African filmmaker, friend of mine and colleague of mine, told Joe what was going on. He, Joe had had a terrific um, career at the BBC, um, war documentaries during the Vietnam War and mm. all kinds of great stuff. He made the classic one phone call and said, okay, let's go. We've got 80,000 pounds. So we went down and co-directed that film. Um, and yeah, oh my God, did that ever, you know, if you want to get started making documentaries, Haiti's a great place to do it. It's <laughs> so rich. <laughs> um, and so in Haiti, uh, one of the people you film is Jean Dominique, uh, who mm. then becomes a significant figure in a, in a, in a later film you make the, the agronomist. Yeah. Um, so how did you meet Jean Dominique? Well, um, Jean Dominique and his wife, Michelle Montas, um, ran, uh, Radio Haiti Inter, um, and it was, when we went down to, to, to kind of like get in touch with those people that were pushing notions of democracy the strongest in various ways, um, you know, we were told, Mano Charlemagne, uh, the singer, you have to film Mano. And we kept hearing Radio Haiti, Jean Dominique, Michel Montas. Hmm. So we requested an interview and we went there actually on the one year anniversary of uh, when Baby Doc had left hmm. and literally one year ahead of the first promised elections. And we did their um, editorials that day and did a little bit of B-roll. And I got such a crush on Jean-Dominique. I thought, this is the most interesting, coolest guy I've ever seen. Hmm. Um, just so, so brilliant and debonair and ooh, just so cool in every possible way. And um, I went away thinking, that is an amazing guy. And I even indulged the fantasy time of like, one day, maybe I'll be able to cast him <laughs> in a leading role in some movie I do, and he'll win an Oscar, and I'll get <laughs> such ego points for discovering <laughs> the radio journalist in Haiti. Here is Jean-Dominique in The Agronomist. I was at the microphone with Michelle, my wife, and we start broadcasting and giving information about the coup with report from everywhere in Port-au-Prince saying that how many people were killed in Saint-Martin, how many people were shot in Carrefourfeuille. At 7.30, two trucks of the army stop in front of the station and start shooting. Because of the opening of the studios, the microphone caught the shooting and my listeners could listen to the shooting of the radio station by the soldier. So anyway, now the coup comes in Haiti, the, um, uh, and Jean goes into exile with Michel. And I heard he was there, and I was like, I want to cultivate this friendship. This guy is here, and I, you know. He moved to New York City. Yeah, in exile. And um, I wanted to cultivate a relationship with him. So I, I kind of, honestly, I think I kind of dreamt up this interesting idea for, and I've done this a couple of times. Uh, uh, my New Orleans docs are also wanting to show up somewhere with the excuse of making a documentary. It gets you through the door. 
And maybe, a documentary isn't necessarily the end goal. It's the key that lets you walk into a yes, room. Yes, it's an excuse. It's like your entitlement. You know, you <laughs> walk in the door with a camera. I had started shooting a little bit because I obviously couldn't afford on the ideas I had to hire anyone else to do it. So I approached Jean and just suggested him. I said, look, you know, you're in exile here. If we meet once a month and we do an interview, you could keep us abreast of the progress or lack of progress towards restoring democratically elected government to Haiti. You can also talk about Haitian history. You're a great storyteller. And at the end of this film, we'll have an amazing ending because we will go back to Haiti with you. And the last shot of the documentary about the journalists in exile will be the journalists back at the microphone. Mm-hmm. And John Dominique was like, uh, that doesn't sound very interesting to me, but you know what? I am bored shitless here in New York. I'm frustrated. So sure, come come film me once a month. Um, so in this way, um, footage was achieved month after month, um, and um, a friendship was forged uh, with Jean, also with Michel. And then the coup leaders are unseated, and Jean is going back to, um, you know, get Radio Haiti up and running again. So Peter Seraf and I and Daniel Wolf um, and other friends went down. We had some cameras, and now we're... And in my head, I'm like, this is crazy because this actually is going to be a documentary. Uh-huh. And it's kind of amazing. You know, that, that made-up one-liner has come to fruition. However, the station had been so damaged, and um, the challenges of actually getting the building fixed up, getting the equipment restored, getting a new tower up was... Herculean challenge for Jean, and after about a week being down there, and I was I was between feature projects and had done one recently and could afford to be down there for a while. Jean um, says, "Jonathan, come to my house tomorrow morning at five o'clock. We have to have coffee together. We have to talk." I'm like, "Okay, can I bring my camera?" No, don't bring your camera. Okay, so I show up, and he says, "Look, it's over. Um, it's been very na- you know nice getting to know you. I'm flattered." although I'm not interested in flattery, that you people thought I'd be an interesting subject. But actually, if, if there was ever to be a documentary about it, it wouldn't take place in a radio station. It would take place out in the Artibonite Valley with the rice farmers because I'm really an agronomist. That, that's who I really am. So uh, he said, I can't, I can't stand having you all around here anymore. Every time I, I turn around, somebody's got a camera up my ass. So I was like, okay, because... Part of me was mission accomplished. Mm. We're fabulous friends. Look how he just, you know, like totally tore me out. <laughs> and um, great, great. Um, well, then very quickly jumping to, I guess, you know, like a year. The station went back on the air. New elections are happening. John's assassinated mm. uh, on the steps of his radio station. And the so news- this is roughly a year after you had stepped away from yes. Stop Making Cease Making a Film. yes. And as devastating as any death of people we care so much about, um, th- that's how uh, the, the, the death of Jean hit me. But also because as someone who loved Haiti as much as I did, the loss of Jean Dominique, who was just adored by the Haitian population except the 1% elite, um, it was just like, oh, my God, a, a Haiti without Jean, Jean, how are they going to maintain the movement towards democracy? So... Um, I know, and I've, I've told Daniel Wolf that morning, we walked our kids to school, and I said, I, I just, you know, I, I got to give up on 
Haiti. That's just that's just it, you know. It's, and Daniel said, well, there's one thing, you know, if we don't want to give up, we could actually go back to Haiti. The station's dark for a month um, after the assassination, but Michel is going to bring the station back on the air um, in one month. He had spoken with her at length that morning. So we could still end the documentary with the voice of democracy back at the microphone. So we went down, spent time with Michelle. It was all tremendously, you know, emotional. And, you know, we, we wound up with a film that ended the way we wanted to, but with someone else at the microphone. And, you know, that was just a, a sheer labor of love, really. Who knew if there'd be anyone interested in seeing that? And um, we had great luck with that film. Uh, distributors immediately gobbled it up. They love Jean. They love um, uh, Michel. And we got into film festivals and had amazing reactions. So, you know, it's, you, n you never know. Uh-huh. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> and today, so now it's 13 years after that film came out, Hades had you know, suffered an earthquake and many other huge forces of adversity. Where is Michelle today? Uh, Michelle Montas lives in New York. Um, after Jean was killed and Michelle brought the station back on the air, there were uh, a number of assassination attempts on Michelle because, again, these are just, just, just you know, the strongest of truth tellers and speak truth to power imaginable. Um, uh, one of Michelle's bodyguards was shot in her driveway and killed mm. a, a young man who I knew, who she adored, and she said, I've got to close the station because all the employees are getting death threats. Um, now someone who was protecting me died protecting me. I don't want to die. I don't want anyone else to die. And Michelle went into kind of self-imposed exile in New York, got the job um, uh, being the spokesperson um, for the uh, Secretary General of the United Nations, Ban Ki-moon, and had a very rich career um, for, for a good number of years um, uh, as, at the UN, went home to Haiti for a visit when the earthquake struck. And the UN mission there was hit very, very hard, tremendous mm. loss of life there. So now Michelle is back in Haiti, post-earthquake, working with the UN, trying to, to pull all that together. Um, I've started, obviously, a, second, you know, a, a sequel documentary uh -huh. called The Agronomist's Wife, uh -huh. Which is, for any feminist, that's such an offensive title, but here it's just perfect. <laughs> um, and we've shot a couple of encounters, um, and it became a little a little much for Michelle, but but maybe someday they'll be the, the, oh, the sequel wow. will come out. Now, and did you go to Haiti um, to, to, to film with her? Have you, have you been in the last 10 years? Uh, I've been in the last 10 years. I've, I visited the um, Cine Institute, mm -hmm. which is this terrific organization outside of Jacques Mel. Um, where, you know, for no tuition, young Haitian kids who've graduated or are actually in, have graduated from junior high and have a sincere interest in filmmaking can come and learn how to be a filmmaker. And it's all underwritten um, by, uh, uh, you know, grant givers and a wonderful guy named um, David Bell, along with Paula Hippolyte and others, started that up. And I've gone down there to do workshops. Um, but no, Michelle was, it's only... Right now is Michelle's first time back in Haiti um, since she left for fear of her life. Um, and uh, so I never had the opportunity to go down there with her. Not mm -hmm. yet. Well, I'd love to see some something come of that uh, project because she's, she's such an extraordinary character. Well, thank you. She is. And by the way, the, the uh, 
investigation into who was responsible for Jean's killings continues to this day. So we have a built-in murder mystery right. um, also. So Right. Now, at some point in your career, you must have recognized that people would listen to you, to your opinions about things other than filmmaking, that you know, once you reach a certain amount of recognition and achievement in something, then people will write down what you say about politics or, or, or other opinions. And I wonder how you think about that and how you deal with it and if you feel deliberate about what you choose to speak your mind about and, and what you don't. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I definitely... As time has gone by, I've definitely um, felt less inclined to say something publicly on on subjects. Um, I go to any and every Black Lives Matter demonstration. I go and I went down to Zuccotti Square in the uh, uh, Occupy Wall Street movement, mm. which turned me on so much. Showed up there as like a you know as as a person and chanting and stuff. But I don't know. It's it's very funny time because over time, and I did. I loved having the opportunity to speak out in public about you know causes that mattered a great deal to me because I think it's important that people stand up. But I think everyone should stand up. And and the idea of because you're a filmmaker, you get to go up on the stage and speak out. Um, that that has gotten more and more complicated for me, and I sort of feel like, um, like if you're lucky enough to be making documentaries that are seen to some extent, um, then then your your documentaries will do your speaking for you in a much more enduring sense than whatever you might have to say on the platform in Central Park that got captured on a two minute YouTube, which may or may not ever be seen by anybody. Mm. Well, uh, that sort of leads into. Uh, a film you made about a politician. Um, so the head of participant had been at a conference. Jimmy Carter had spoken, and um, he was tremendously moved by Carter. I got the call. I'm not quite sure why. Would I be interested in doing a film about Jimmy Carter? Well, as so many of us are, um, the the situation for the Palestinian people was becoming more and more unbearable as an American citizen to see how, like with our foreign policy, we support um, Israel's um, uh, bellicose occupational policies. You know, as a taxpayer, I'm like, this is so wrong. And our media is not giving us even-handed stuff. And here's Jimmy Carter, who dares to be completely outspoken on the subject of Palestine. And... Um, I, I went to meet Carter to discuss what could this be about, you know, what could what could we hang this documentary on, and um, because it was a kind of open invitation, let's make yeah. a film about Carter was the only brief, and now we have to figure out what that would be. Yes, uh, exactly. So you know, what's what's our story? So I went to see him, and um, you know, said, "Have you been thinking about this?" And he said, "No, I haven't." You know, I'm, you know, it's nice that the participant people. Or considering making a film about me, I would be interested depending on what form it would take. But no, I haven't thought about it. Have you? And I said, well, I have. And I, and I told him what I just told you about my, my, my concern about how one-sided uh, America tended to look at the um, Palestinian-Israeli situation. And um, he's like, well, I've written a book called Palestine, Peace, Not Apartheid, and we're going to do a book tour uh, in a couple of months. And I was like, oh, my God. So you didn't even know that. Uh, that was no. a coincidence of, of your thinking and what he had been working on. Yeah, and it felt fated 
to me. I was like, wow. And I, I immediately knew a book tour. Um, it's going to be a national tour, obviously. We'll get to see America. We'll get to go behind the scenes at the various media empires. Presumably, he's going to be at the top tier of, of uh, guest spots on all the best shows. So um, I proposed that to him, and he said, okay. And I said, you know, give an amazing opportunity, rare opportunity, really shed light from your point of view, which I, I think is tremendously even-minded because it's not like Jimmy Carter's pro-Palestine and anti-Israel. He's pro-peace between the two countries. And he's definitely uh, uh, kind of like um, will dare to speak out on a subject where many of us in America um, are afraid to speak out. Um, he, um, and I also thought, you know, what, this is an amazing chance because I always love Carter as a president. I know he's not a popular president particularly. And I, many people say, oh, he's been terrific post-presidency. He did so many things I thought were great. So, um, I was very inspired by Carter and thrilled to be making a, a film. And I also thought maybe we can find out what makes a guy like Jimmy Carter tick why does he care so much about the Palestinian people? You know, why is he, why Habitat for Humanities? Why is he so big on civil rights issues, this, this Georgia peanut farmer? Here's a clip from Jimmy Carter, Man from Plains, where Carter is addressing a university audience. He's reflecting on the criticism of his book, Palestine, Peace, Not Apartheid. And, and I've been uh, hurt. Uh, by some of the reaction. You know, I've been through political campaigns for state senate and for governor and for president, and, and, and I've been uh, stigmatized and, and condemned by my political opponents and their supporters. But this is the first time that I've ever been called a liar and a bigot and an anti-Semite and a coward and a um, plagiarist. This has hurt me. I can take it. Well, I think what you've just said puts into perspective uh, a memory I have, which is I think the first time we met was because I was showing the Jimmy Carter film at the Toronto Film Festival, uh, and we had Carter there, and mm -hmm. you were there, and... I got the message before the film from a publicist that Jonathan doesn't want to do a Q&A uh, uh, for the film. And I thought, oh, gosh, this is a missed opportunity. You know, like, you know, the audience, I think, would really like to hear something from Jonathan. So I went up to you backstage and I said, how about we just do a short – we won't take questions from the audience. I'll just ask you mm -hmm. uh, a question. That way we don't have to, like, take any, you know, tricky left field questions. Um, and you said, great, let's, uh, let's do that. Uh, and then your publicist came over to me and said, what are you doing? You're, you're not supposed to take, uh, do a Q&A with Jonathan. And, uh, and you did something brilliant. We went on stage. I asked you one question. You said what you wanted to say. And then you said, okay, thank you, everybody. Good night. No. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was a genius move. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. That's very generous of you. Um, so I guess. But, but, but from what you are saying now, it, uh, it makes me think that you were really wanting the film to speak for itself and, and that not be sure. out there. That for sure. And just, you know, in, in the flow of what we've been talking about, what I hear is, yeah, I 
myself will not be able to say anything um, better than what Carter says for himself or the film on the subject says. Um, and, uh, and also there's probably, um, you think there was some timidity involved in there about not wanting to get into that controversy? That was my read at the time. Yeah, well, that probably was a factor. Um, that probably, I'm sure, was a factor. I also might have felt a little bit presumptuous um, because, you know, Carter is the person to ask right. questions of here. I, I don't know enough. Uh, I, I know how I feel about this, and I've, I've learned a great deal, but I'm not sure I'm, I'm uh, you know, entitled. There are a lot of people that, you know, in that— Well, the other thing, I mean, about that specific topic, and I've shown a number of films about it, and, and I feel your own apprehension about getting into it because uh, you, you know, one question leads to another question, which uh, covers 70 years of history and— mm -hmm. Uh, so it's very easy to get wrapped up in a knot talking about that. Mm -hmm. It is. And, and it's also because that, that journey you just described there almost inevitably delivers to charges of being anti-Semitic, um, which is as vile a thing that you can accuse anybody of, as I can imagine. And um, you have to, like, if you're going to, get in a conversation which will almost inevitably, if you're speaking with sensitivity and support for the Palestinian people's right to statehood, at a certain point you're going to be called an anti-Semite. So you have to be ready to oh, take that deep breath and say, well, actually, we're not talking about the Jewish faith. I love Judaism. Many of my best friends from my life have been in our Jewish. I have great feelings for the Jewish people. What we're trying to talk about here, you and me, is, is the nation of Israel and its policies of occupation and oppression and how my country supports those dynamics. And if I'm, as an American, if I've been led to believe that I have to speak up when I feel my country's doing the wrong thing and we're involved in a huge way in supporting Israeli policy, I have to speak up. That has nothing to do with Jewishness or Judaism. Uh, nothing whatsoever. But you have to be able to say that. And you have to be able to say it without feeling that pain of being labeled something that you that disgusts you, you know. So it's really ah so you know, if if it's very folks, difficult to have the conversation, I'm not an anti Semite. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because you're 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 just saying those obvious truths imaginable to a very very bad lousy argument against you. We'll be back with more from Jonathan Demme in a minute, but first, a word from our sponsor. Pure Nonfiction is brought to you by AMC Network's Sundance Now Doc Club. Look out for Take 5, Justice in America, a collection of five-minute documentaries commissioned by Sundance Now Doc Club. Each film looks at a hot-button issue of social justice, including voting rights, gentrification, and gun violence, documented by leading filmmakers. Timely for election season, these films debut for free on Monday, May 16th. To watch them, go to take5.docclub.com. In the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, Demi started making trips to New Orleans, shooting footage that would result in the film I'm Carolyn Parker, the good, the mad, and the beautiful. 
Here's a clip as Carolyn Parker speaks to a New Orleans City Commission on rebuilding the city. So I'm asking you, all of you, the whole panel, because I heard nothing really for the Lord Night Ward. Those are my family, my friends, my neighbor. I've been down there, yes, I'm telling my age, 59 years. And I know who been here, I know who came, I know who went. So I'm asking you, you named every part of New Orleans, but you never named anything really for the Lower Night Ward. So I'm here for those persons who could not get back. And I don't think it's right if you try to take our property, because like I said, over my dead body. I didn't die with Katrina. Bye. I asked what drew him to New Orleans. This was yet another of these instances of, um, I'm so moved and horrified and heartbroken about what we see um, on the news about this terrible fate that's befallen the people of New Orleans. And I want to show up as people are starting to do. And I can't do anything with my hands. I'm just hopelessly inept. (laughs) But I am a filmmaker, and I can kind of shoot a camera now. And that gives me a good excuse to just show up and and say how you doing to people yeah. and film them and make them un, you know feel in a tiny way just in a one person way you know that pe- some new some weird new yorker cares and has come down to so um uh, Daniel Wolf, my my frequent collab, my dear friend and frequent collaborator. Um, maybe we should just take a moment since his name keeps coming up to describe who Daniel Wolf is. So. Okay, uh, Daniel is an old old friend and neighbor. Uh, we we uh, live across the street from each other. Um, Daniel's a wonderful poet and author. Um, he's written great books about um, Sam Cooke and Bruce Springsteen and Asbury Park. And many, many, and they do, he's he's an acknowledged, terrific writer. He's interested in, um, well, he's interested in film, but he's very interested in documentaries um, uh, because he's interested in getting at the truth. All his books, his poems are poems, but Mm -hmm. but his his writing is all nonfiction. So Daniel saw a chance for him to maybe do some research on the possibility of doing a book about what happened in New Orleans in the aftermath of the floods that followed Katrina. Um, and he wanted to show up too. So we went down there and, um, we start, uh, my old friend Cyril Neville from the Neville brothers, um, had, had called me. I, I had tried to find out what happened to Cyril after the floods and had been unable to find him. And then I got a call from him on New Year's day, um, uh, five months after the floods, um, saying I'm in, in Texas and we're fine. And then he told me about these people that had refused to leave the, the devastated neighborhoods who were, like, laying claim to their land and their houses, and they were committed to rebuilding them. So we had a little list of people. Cyril gave me some names. Uh, Daniel had some names from a, a friend of his. And we went down and started looking these people up, filming them, <laughs> just, like, turning the camera on. And also we'd see someone on the street filming them. Um, and... I was like, my bogus idea here for a documentary was, what we'll do is we'll do a, we'll come down here four times because you immediately, you know, as a documentary filmmaker, if you pursue the kind of subject matter I do, which is people that inspire you, you know, you're 
constantly falling in love with your quote-unquote subjects. (laughs) So at the end of one visit, I wanted to see everybody again, and I wanted to see their lives get better. So Daniel and I cooked up this idea. Okay, we will do, let's make, we just did a winter visit. Let's do four seasonal visits Mm -hmm. over the course of this year, and then we'll have a film that showed, you know, the, 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 the improvements in neighborhoods and lives over the course of the one year, first year following the floods. So we go down in the spring, we go down in the summer, we go down in the fall, we go down again in the winter, and nothing has gotten better. The people that we're visiting have become more and more fascinating and incredible and amazing and inspiring, but nothing's working yet. None of federal, state, we all know this, local level, nothing's happening. So now there's a sense of, of um, maybe we need, and no one else is down there anymore. You know, the floods are over. Right. So people, they were, the New Orleans were surprised that we showed up again. So anyway, um, I saw Tavis Smiley and told him what we'd been doing with these visits. And Tavis offered a week on his TV show uh, and said, do you want to, you know, do 20-minute films? Um, and mm-hmm. we'll do a whole week devoted to New Orleans. And, and I said, yes. So that you know, motivated us to actually cut together a visit for each season, introducing some of the people that... So anyway, the new commitment, Tom, became, okay, we're going to keep doing these visits until um, everybody's back in their homes. It's going to be two years. Could it be three? Well, five, five and a half years later, people started finally getting back in their houses. And by now... At first, I think we intended this at best as a kind of report, uh, current events from the front line, and certainly the Tavis Smiley show gave us that. But the more we kept going, the more I started feeling, well, this has great archival value. Mm. This is a much broader, longer story now. And again, the deepening portraits of these people, these are great Americans whose story is invaluable for us to know about. So, um, you know, six years and my savings account later, mm-hmm. um, we wound up with actually two films. One is um, I'm Carolyn Parker. Um, another one is called New Home Movies from the Lower Ninth Ward. That's kind of the right. pilot. Uh, and that that was the four, the five Tavis shows cut together. I thought, wait a minute, five 20-minute documentaries <laughs> equals a feature-length documentary. <laughs> so we, I'm in the works now, actually here at the Jacob Burns Film Center, we're working to complete a new family story, and that's Guardians of the Flame about the Harrison family. Mm-hmm. Um, Harris, Harrison's the brilliant matriarch, Donald Harrison Jr., the great jazz saxophonist, is one of the clan. Uh, uh, um, Christian Scott, the Grammy-winning hip-hop trumpet player, is Harish's grandson. It's an amazing family steeped in the Mardi Gras Indian tradition and culture. And we have five years of great stuff of Harish getting back into her house and and uh, the family going into the public schools that were struggling to get back on their feet and uh, book uh, literacy marathons and all kinds of great stuff. So I'm hoping that one will be done soon. There's I have to tell you that there's also another quote-unquote character in his family that we visited for five and a half years, Pastor Melvin Jones, an extraordinary guy um, who runs a, 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 a place for men to get the help get their lives back together. And mm-hmm. over the course of the years, then opened a women's shelter. They went from a tiny basement to a big place. So, uh, and then finally, there's a portrait of um, what they call Backatown, which is the neighborhood behind the Florida Avenue Bridge, which is the neighborhood where the barge that had been left adrift during the flood smashed through the levee walls and 
drowned the entire neighborhood. And we filmed that in wasteland for six years and towards like around somewhere in the four and a half years, a couple of people started showing up. Uh-huh. And we have that. So hopefully one day, um, I don't think I'll live that long, but I, but there could be a quintet of, <laughs> of portraits of great Americans um, in the aftermath of the floods that followed uh, Hurricane Katrina. So I'm never going to stop trying to get those made. So, th- you know, this is such a passion project, and, and, and there are other documentary passion projects uh, that you've done. Um, I can't think of another director of your caliber, won an Oscar for fiction film, has made you know, uh, huge attention-getting fiction films, who takes that much time off to do a passion project. I know of other directors who will do a documentary in between um, doing a fiction film, but often those documentaries are pretty high-profile projects uh, mm-hmm. uh, in themselves. These projects are really, you know, they're about your own personal investment. You're the one often holding the camera. You're the one putting in uh, the time. You're the one taking off time from doing other things. And I wonder how you make that choice. Um, you know, I've, I've, I sort of feel it's probably a couple of different things. As the years went by, um, and, you know, I, again, love making feature films. I loved making studio films. And I was lucky enough to be one of the filmmakers who was working all the time with Orion Pictures, the legendary distribution company headed by great, great men. Um, uh, So I had terrific experiences uh, making features. But as time went on, as things changed, as I got older and as the studios became more corporatized, it became tougher and tougher for me in the Orion years to have as great a time making features. I still wanted to, um, you know, earn the money that came with those big projects because that's how I could afford to take time off. And gee, you know, it was nice to to get super well paid, but, you know, it bought me that kind of currency. Um, So I think I just found myself just gravitating towards towards the oxygen of documentary filmmaking, the the savings consuming uh, oxygen (laughs) of documentary filmmaking. And at this point, um, you know, I I have uh, you know I've come to terms with with, with different things about my my um, career, my quote unquote career, and I sort of feel I've lost my competitive spirit. Um, I don't hunger to have one last number one movie hmm. or hmm. or one last award or to be on the top ten list. And I've at one in, time you did. Uh, well, at one time that was happening, and it was great. Um, but I feel like I have, in a way, nothing left to prove in that arena, I, and I don't want to compete for those kind of things. So, uh, you know, this may be you know, just some kind of version of the softening in me or something, mm-hmm. and my aversion to, you know, corporate politics and, and, and you know, you, and what have you. But um, so, and I've kind of, I sort of feel like almost I've gravitated towards, I'm open to anything, and tomorrow I could read it, and the unlikely event that that uh, today's studios would send me a great script, um, you know, I, I could you're, die. You're in. ready to go. Yeah. yeah, I could be, but I have, I have no interest in pursuing that. Um, and I find that I've, you know, for the past certain amount of, you know, five years or so, I've, I've, made, I've made films that I don't think anyone else would have made 
or films that got made, certainly because of my interest and my willingness to roll up my sleeves and kind of dive in on something really provocative and exciting with very limited commercial aspirations. And that could be um, like the, uh, oh gosh, the uh, the Master Builder, this amazing Ibsen movie I had the privilege of making with Andre Gregory and Wally Shawn. Uh-huh. Um, you know, that's, uh, we, we got that movie made. Um, and, uh, you know, documentary about Enzo Avitabile, the, the great uh, uh, Neapolitan composer and performer. Um, so I, I love to shoot and I love to share for anyone who's interested, um, the things that turn me on enough to make me want to go film. And again, it's almost always some kind of inspirational thing. I, I'm not, you, you'll, I will never make an expose. Um, you know, I will never reveal the hideous truth about someone or get to the bottom of some conspiracy. I love those films, but it's not, that's not what my toolkit does. I, I, my biggest, um, asset as a filmmaker has always been my enthusiasm. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so that's what I got to go by. So I was watching Cousin Bobby last night and it clicked for me in a way that I hadn't put together before. How much uh, faith, religious faith recurs in uh, in your film? Certainly in Cousin Bobby, also in Jimmy Carter, also in Carolyn Parker, where you've uh, been attracted to these figures for whom faith is very important. Mm-hmm. And, and I wonder, do you think that is a coincidence or uh, or expected? Here's what I think about that. I've, I've thought about that. And I, you know, faith um, is for me, it's also a metaphor for community. Um, uh, whether it's Jimmy Carter and, and his church, his Baptist church, or it's Caroline Parker and her Catholic church, um, or Cousin Bobby preaching in his Episcopal church. Yes, Mm, the theme is religion, or the narrative actually is religious in nature, but the theme is community-driven and and positive social change-driven. So I love churches, and I feel great in churches um, because I feel the warmth of the churches that I've been to with the people that inspire me. And I'm very moved and very respectful of that. It hasn't led me to... I, I believe in people who believe in a positive way in God. Um, all religions have people nowadays that bring horrendous, you know, mm. uh, uh, negativity and, and bedlam to their belief in God. All religions have that, you know, all of them do. Um, so, yeah, it's, but it's funny because I, I love shooting in churches. And, um, uh, and especially in I'm Carolyn Parker, there's scenes of her going to church when her church is finally rebuilt. And um, just the hymns are being sung, and you see all those faces. And here, here are the believers, and aren't they beautiful? Aren't, aren't, isn't one inspired uh, by that sense of community and, and thematic devotion to positive things? So you're sitting across from me now, <clears throat> looking in great spirits and, and great health. Uh, but I know that a, a year ago, you went through a serious bout of, of cancer, and I wonder what that meant for your life. I, I can't help but assume that there's a certain taking stock uh, that, <laughs> that you go through. For sure. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, I was discovered to have uh, esophageal cancer. And um, I went into a really, really, really intense bombardment of my esophagus and surrounding organs by chemotherapy and radiation. And um, that 
takes the wind out of one's sails. I mean, having the disease is one thing, and the treatment, wow. Um, but, you know, we get through these things, and um, it definitely, um, it inevitably had a huge effect on me. First of all, you know, when you get radiated like that, you know, your energy level. I had enough energy in me to complete Ricky and the Flash, which I was just finishing up when I got the diagnosis, and had recently finished shooting um, Justin Timberlake uh, plus the Tennessee Kids, um, which hasn't come out yet. Mm -hmm. um, and I was able to both work very enthusiastically, despite my limited energy. I had this beautiful movie, the Justin movie, to be working on. And it, it, it supported my recovery um, a lot, and it gave me something to think about other than my recovery. Mm. And um, so that was just a, a great experience to, to keep my toe in. But meanwhile, um, I, I was thinking that, um, you know, oh boy, do, you know, just like about the effort it takes to make movies. And I'm, I'm in my 70s now, and I've been making films pretty much nonstop since, um, well, the early 70s, um, either as a director or producer or writer or something. So this gave me a moment of going like, and like I was saying earlier about not wanting to compete anymore, I think that was probably definitely part of all this time I had to reflect on things. I started feeling a little better. By the way, I, I feel terrific now. The doctors did wonderful work, um, and I feel great. I feel like I'm back. Um, but um, I started watching a lot more because I'm an obsessive cineast and film buff and moviegoer. Yeah. And now I was like, well, it's all I have the energy to do, really, <laughs> is watch movies. And I, I went to um, the Venice Film Festival. It was my first official act of trying to get back on my feet. I was on a, uh, a, a jury over there, the Orizante jury. Saw a tremendous amount of fabulous movies and was being able to eat again, you know, with as the, the scorched. Venice. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, um, so, and then I went to a, to Lisbon Festival a couple of months later, which was great. Saw a ton of movies. And, um, so I've, I've kind of like, I've slowed down in a very, in a way that pleases me very much. I'm not running around looking for projects. Uh, I'm enjoying feeling good again. Um, I'm like, determined to get um, Guardians of the Flame, the Harrison family documentary made. Mm. Uh, I've got enough energy for that. And um, I'm going to do an episode um, in uh, a couple of weeks on a wonderful um, TV series um, that's been created called Shots Fired, which is going to take a, a look at events, at the events that happened in Ferguson, Missouri, in a fictional town um, in Tennessee from the inside out. And I have the honor of directing the sixth episode there. So I'm just in a, I don't know. So your relaxed year is as intense as most people's most intense year. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Guilty as charged. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, lucky as charged. Yeah. I want to thank Jonathan Demme for giving generously of his time. In our next episode, I talk to Josh Kriegman and Elise Steinberg, the directors of this year's Grand Jury Prize winner at the Sundance Film Festival, Wiener, about the politician Anthony Wiener as he runs for mayor against the backdrop of a tabloid scandal over sexting. 
we see these scandals and these meltdowns play out all the time, but what does it mean to be in the room? Um, what is what is it like for people really at the center of a media firestorm? What's that, you know, what does that feel like? Thanks to the Pure Nonfiction team, series producer Michael Scotty Jr., coordinating producer Rachel Fishman Federson, and executive producer Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. If you like what you've heard, the best way to support us is to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review, even a short one. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.